We're studying this morning, focusing on uh, John 3, 18 to 21, but to put it in its proper context, I'll read um, John 3, verses 1 to 21. Would you please stand at a reference, reverence for the word of the Lord? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Classify people on all sorts of grounds, by nationality, maybe you're Canadian or American or German or South African, or maybe by race, black, white, or Asian, by socioeconomic class, upper class, middle class, working class, lower class. But this morning we're going to see that there really are only two kinds of people. You maybe have heard the cliche, there's two kinds of people in this world. It's true there are two kinds of people in this world, but they're not winners and losers, or the rich or the poor, or men and women. Now Nicodemus would have agreed, he would have said there are two kinds of people in this world, Jews and Gentiles. He would have believed that the dividing line between those who are saved and those who are perishing is based on their ethnicity, whether they are an ethnic Jew or a Gentile, a Jew or everybody else. But in this passage, we're going to see that Nicodemus was half right, that there really are two kinds of people in this world. But he got the dividing line wrong. People are divided between those who are 
saved and those who are perishing, but the true dividing line has nothing to do with ethnicity. The true dividing line is between, as we'll see this morning, people who believe in Christ and people who don't, people who are not condemned and those who are, people who love light and those who love darkness, people who practice truth and people who practice evil. And which side you fall on depends on which side you stand. On Friday night at Family Night, we studied 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Verses 1 and 2 read, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So this morning I want to ask you the question, are you standing on the gospel or do you stand condemned? So first point, people who believe in Christ versus people who don't. Last week we focused on John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There we saw God's love for the world, not world without exception, but world without distinction. God's love goes beyond national Israel and includes Gentiles as well. His love was so great that he would send his only begotten son to die for our sins. There's simply no higher price that could ever be paid or has ever been paid or will ever be paid than that price. The price of God the Son. There is no price that could ever be paid that was higher than the one that was paid on Calvary. Not only is the love of God the Son displayed in that he was willing to bear our sins and take on the wrath of a holy God for our sins. But both, but the Father was also displayed, the love of the Father was also displayed in that he was willing to inflict that punishment on his Son for us. He was pleased, it was the will of the Father to crush him for us, for our sins. And both father and son were willing to face separation for the first and only time in all of history, in all of eternity, for us. But Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to provide the way of salvation, the only way of salvation. So we need to ask the question, do you believe in him? Do you believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God? It's easy to say yes. It's easy to say yes to that. But it's hard to really believe. Apart from the grace of God, it's impossible to really believe. So we need to ask the question here, what does Jesus mean when he talks about believing? The Greek word pisteo includes the concept of faith, of relying or trusting. So imagine yourself hiking in a huge 
pine forest on a beautiful summer day. You're enjoying the warm air and the scent of, of pine needles when all of a sudden you pick up the acrid smell of smoke. You quickly look behind you and see flames in the distance. You begin to panic and start to run as you realize that the fire is bearing down on you. You run like you have never run in all your life, but the flames are getting closer. The heat becomes unbearably hot and you find yourself, you find it difficult to, to breathe in the thick smoke. You run and you run when all of a sudden you come to a deep ravine. You look down and you see that it's over 300 feet deep and there's a, below there's a raging river full of jagged rocks. You look across and realize that there's no way that you could jump the 200 foot span. You feel helpless as, you, as the flames begin to singe your hair. Then you see it. Somehow you'd missed it previously through the thick smoke, but you see what looks like a bridge just 20 yards away, and you run as fast as your legs would carry you to that bridge. When you get there, you see that it is indeed a bridge. It looks sturdy. It's made of heavy-gauge steel. It would certainly be able to carry your weight. But believing that there's a bridge and that it could carry your weight can't save you. Even a comprehensive knowledge of the engineering behind bridges could not save you. You have to put your faith in the bridge. You have to trust that the bridge can carry you to the other side and to actually go across on the bridge. The only way to safety is trusting that the bridge will support you and you make your dash to safety on the other side of the chasm. But there are so many who see the bridge. They know that it's a bridge. They know that Christ is the only way, yet they do not put their trust in him. Matthew Henry says, Unbelief may be truly called the great damning sin because it leaves us under the guilt of all our other sins. It is a sin against the remedy against our appeal. In other words, unbelief compounds our guilt because it rejects the solution for our dire circumstances. John 3.18 says that he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So when somebody rejects Jesus, they're not rejecting just a concept or a philosophy, or a religion, they are rejecting a person. And not just any person, they are rejecting God the Son. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other plan of salvation. There is only one gospel. There is only one good news. Everything else is bad news. Buddha can't save you. Allah can't save you. Krishna can't save you. You can't save you. This last one points directly at Nicodemus and the Pharisees. Jesus had just explained that the new birth is a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of an unbeliever. 
that it comes from, from the love of the Father, but it is the Son to whom we must turn. But the Pharisees tried to save themselves by their obedience. So I need to ask you this morning, are you rejecting the Son by trying to save yourself by your obedience? As if people were not already condemned as guilty for their immeasurable sins, think of the sheer arrogance and wickedness in a person's heart that would cause them to reject Jesus Christ. Again from Matthew Henry, God sent one to save us that was the dearest to himself, and shall not he be dearest to us? Shall we not believe on his name, who has a name above every name? But many will say here, I do believe. I do believe in Jesus Christ. But if your belief is genuine, then we will rejoice with you and praise God. But if your belief is not genuine, then you are in the most dire of all circumstances. Turn please to James chapter 2, verse 19. Here in the middle of this often, under, often misunderstood passage, James says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even demons believe and tremble. Do you see that? Demons believe. They believe that God is one, and they respond in fear to him. Now, this, this refers to, this comes from what is known as the Shema, and that's from, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. In verses 4 and 5, which is really one of the most important passages in the Old Testament, Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The demons do the first part. They believe that the Lord is one. They believe it. They could do the first part just fine, but they fail miserably in the second. They don't love God. They hate him and are terrified of him. And this will also be the response of unrepentant sinners who will call on mountains and on rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb on the day of judgment. That type of belief is not enough. There are those who say they believe in God, but do not love and obey him. Their faith is no better than that of demons because they have not put their faith in him. So what kind of person are you? Are you the kind of person who believes in Christ? Do you believe that Jesus really is the Son of God? Is your faith in Him and Him alone? Have you turned from your sin with a heart of repentance? Are you trusting that He received the wrath of God in your place and that His righteousness has been credited to you? Ask those who are closest to you if your life is characterized by the demonstration of spiritual fruit and growth in the same. If that's the, the kind of person that you are, then what Jesus said in John 5, 24 is true of you. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. This brings us to our second dividing line. People who are condemned versus people who are not condemned. Verse 18 says, says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Earlier I described that the plight of somebody who is trapped between a fire and a deep chasm. Those who have put their faith in the bridge and crossed the other side and to safety have found life. That is, after all, why God sent his son, that we might have eternal life. John 3.16 and John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now the verb have here in both these verses is in the present tense. In other words, those who have eternal life have it now, right now. They have already passed from death to life. It's not something you have to wait for. But those who refuse to cross the bridge are either incinerated by the fire or dashed on the rocks or drowned in the river. They're already dead, for whoever does not believe is condemned already. And we've seen why, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The reality of the situation is that the individual who does not trust in Jesus Christ is condemned already. It's like the declaration that's made on death row as the condemned prisoner takes his last walk from his cell to the electric chair. Dead man walking. But this is more than just a death penalty sentence. The death that this person dies is eternal. They are not just destroyed in hell, they are eternally destroyed in hell because their sin is against an infinitely holy God and their punishment will fit the crime. It has to be an infinite punishment. The Lord says in Ezekiel 22, verses 21 and 22, I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it, as silver is melted in fire, so that you will be melted in the midst of it, and you will know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath on you. But this is an unquenchable fire, Matthew 9, 43. There is no hope for release ever. But even though these individuals have not yet experienced the wrath of God, it remains on them nonetheless. This kind of death is alienation from God, the only source of life. Ephesians 4.18 says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. And Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Think about that for a moment dead in trespasses and sins. All around you, every day, you are surrounded by the walking dead. But this is immeasurably worse than some B-rated zombie movie. These people are spiritually dead, 
alienated from the life of God. But again, consider Ephesians 2.1. You were dead. You, me, we were dead. But God has made us alive, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were every bit as dead as those around us, but God has made us alive. That's precisely what Jesus was talking about in John 3, with the new birth. God making us alive in the power of his Spirit. God enabling us to believe in the name of of the Son of God. And we see in verse 19 that this is judgment, that light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And this is the third dividing line, people who love light versus people who love darkness. As we talked about before, light versus darkness is one of the main themes in the gospel according to John. We saw it in chapter 1, how it was a reflection of Genesis 1, where it was the division between the light and the darkness began at creation, where God was separating light from darkness. And in John 1, 4, and 5, we read, the life was the light of men. The light was coming in, the light was coming into the world. Sorry, the light was shining in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And this also points back to Genesis, and God said, let there was light, let there be light, and there was light. And in verse 9, the true life which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus declares in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We'll see it again when we, when we look at the, the living parable of Jesus healing the man that was born blind in John chapter 9. Jesus came into a world darkened by sin. The elect will respond to the light of Christ in repentance and faith as the Holy Spirit gives them life. D.A. Carson explains, And the light of the world, as the light of the world, Jesus is the revelation of God and the objectification of divine holiness and purity. The light represents all of God's attributes, his infinity, his eternality, his unchangeability, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his faithfulness. The light of Christ shows us God's supreme standard of righteousness as he walked in holiness through his dark world. In the light of Christ, we see the darkness of our sin. God's light reveals darkness. Remember verse 2, Nicodemus came by night to see Jesus. Now, although this really did happen, Nicodemus did come to Jesus at night, this detail is included as a metaphor. We discussed this a few weeks ago. A.W. Pink says the ruler of the Jews had come to Jesus by night as though his deeds would not bear the light. Imagine living in the deep recesses of a cave, your whole life, never seeing the light of day. But you don't know that you're in the dark because you've never known anything but darkness. Then, all of a sudden, somebody comes 
in and shines a 500,000 candle headlight straight in your eyes. Now you realize the darkness that you've been in until that moment. Jesus says in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. When Christ came into the world, light was shining in his dark world. Many years ago, uh, I remember going on a camping trip with some friends, and we were, this was, was way off the beaten track. And, uh, and we got there, and, and one of the guys said to me, John, where's your flashlight? And I said, uh, I didn't bring one. Where's your flashlight? And uh, it turned out that out of the four of us, none of us had remembered to bring a flashlight. And uh, we, we had a long walk, probably about a half-hour walk from where we left our car to the place that we were camping. And this was one of those dark nights. There was, as I remember, no moon. It was, it was pitch black. But we had to get to our campsite, so we be, began to stumble along. We found a, a dry uh, riverbed and, and followed that dry riverbed to the place where we wanted to camp. And we finally got there, and my friend said, okay, we'll, we'll put our tent right here. And then he lifted up his hand, he said, oh no. And he smelled his hand. He put his hand right in the middle of a pile of dog dirt. We, would, we were never so grossed out in our lives and so desperate for a flashlight. So many people are like that, stumbling around in the dark with no light to shine on their paths, even though the light of Christ has shone. But many are walking in darkness and aren't seeking the light. Job 24.3 says that there are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways and do not stay in its paths. This is true of everyone who does not turn in faith from their sin to Jesus Christ as his light shines in the power of his Holy Spirit. As A.W. Pink explains, it is not only that men are in the dark, but that they love the darkness. They prefer ignorance, error, superstition to the light of truth. The vast majority of people love darkness because they hate the light. They hate the light of Christ. They hate Christ. But again, they'll tell you, I don't hate Christ. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. If you love the light of Christ, you will come to him. What you hate, you avoid. Now, as many of you know, I love the sea and its creatures. I spend, when I was living in Australia, I spent as much time in the water as I could. But occasionally, a particular wind would blow a creature that was known as a, as a blue bottle on to the shore. You might know this, this animal as a Portuguese man of war. And you would see at the, at the water line, there would be millions and millions 
of these jellyfish, and they would have long tentacles, some 30 feet long. And if you get tangled up in these tentacles, as happened to me once around my wrist, it, it, the pain is excruciating. So I hate blue bottles. I hate them. I would avoid the ocean. The, 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 you could have a, a perfect lineup of waves, and there would be no surfers in the water because of the blue bottles. We avoid what we hate. Now, on the other hand, I love Jane so much that I want to spend as much time with her as I possibly can. What you hate, you avoid. What you love, you approach. What you love, you come to. I love Jesus, so I come to him. I hate sin, so I avoid it. I love him so much that I love what he loves, and I hate what he hates. Verse 20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So now we see the fourth dividing line between those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Those who work evil versus those who practice truth. People say you are what you eat. That the Bible says differently. The Bible says you are what you do. Those who are perishing are revealed by their works that their works are evil. They do wicked things. Verse 20. However, those who are being saved do what is true. And more accurately, it actually means to do the truth. That's how the King James renders it. He who doeth truth. So how exactly does one do the truth? Homer Kent Jr. says that such a person does the truth when he responds with the appropriate action to God's revelation and accepts the light of the gospel as proclaimed by Christ. By accepting and acting upon God's truth, he comes to the light. And A.T. Robertson explains he does not claim that he is perfect, only that the works that he does have been wrought in the sphere and the power of God. Hence, he wants the light turned on. So to do the truth here is a, it's a cinnamon, cinnamon, not cinnamon, it's a synonym for acting faithfully. D.A. Carson says it's, it's a Semitic expression which explains which means to act faithfully or to act honorably. In Ephesians 5 verses 11 to 14, we're told, "Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak." of those things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And in 1 John 1, 5-7, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Passage after passage compares the works of darkness versus the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But none is, is truer than in Galatians chapter 5. Please turn with me to Galatians 5. Verse 16. 
Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And in verse, in verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And then there in the middle, he compares the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21 versus the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 to 23. In verse 24, he says, Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And this is not just a once-off crucifying of the flesh. We daily take up our cross and follow Jesus. We are demonstrating the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and we grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So again, ask yourself, ask those who love you, who know you, is my life evidencing the fruit of the Holy Spirit or the works of the flesh? Can you go before the omniscient God and say with the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Turn again, please, to James chapter 2. In James 2, verses 14 to 26, we see that faith works while false faith doesn't work. And that's true in both senses of the word. Not only does false faith not work in, in that it won't bring you salvation, but false faith does not bear fruits in keeping with salvation and with repentance. We've already seen the example of demons who believe but don't work. But we also see here that Abraham in verse 23, sorry, in verse 21 and 20 to 23, was justified by his works. Now, this doesn't mean that he was pronounced not guilty before God because of his works. This is the different connotation of the word justified. He was justified before men. His, his works prove his faith. And also we see the example of Rahab the prostitute. Her works also proved her faith. Do your works prove your faith? In Luke chapter 6, 46, when Jesus who taught about those who build their house on a rock versus those who build their house on sand, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Think about it. There are many people who call Jesus Lord, but don't know him, and he doesn't know them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that he would declare to those who do not do God's will, even though they say, Lord, Lord, he'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So you might be able to give correct theological answers to many questions. You may be able to quote many passages of Scripture. You might even give your body to be burned. But without love, it will profit you nothing. If you are not obeying God, you do not love God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
If you are not living your life seeking to submit to Jesus Christ and everything that he taught, you simply do not love him. He is not your Lord and he is not your Savior. You are dead in your sins and transgressions and the wrath of God remains on you. But whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him, John 3.36. See that? Whoever believes has eternal life, but whoever does not obey does not see life. Now we come to the, to the fourth and final dividing line between those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Those who don't want their deeds exposed versus those who do want their deeds exposed. So you see here in in verse 20, the end of verse 20, he does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But in verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that he does that his deeds have been carried out in God. So one doesn't want the truth revealed about them, and the other does want the truth revealed about them. Those who are perishing do not want their evil deeds exposed. While the person who does wicked things or the wicked person doesn't want their works exposed because they draw negative attention to him or herself, the person who practices truth wants their deeds exposed because their works draw their attention away from them, because their works point to God's work in them. So really, neither one wants the attention drawn to them, but one for totally the wrong reasons, but, and the other for the totally right reasons, because they want to give God glory. Beloved, when we are obeying God, when we are really seeking to glorify Him with our lives, we don't need to draw attention to what we're doing. If you really are trying to glorify God by your works, others will see it, and they will praise God. And it's my prayer that here in this church that we'll be on the lookout for evidences of grace in one another, and that when we see it, we will glorify God by going to the person and saying, I see you glorifying God when you serve Him by doing this. Or I see you glorifying God when you suffer with faith in the midst of a severe trial. Or I see you glorifying God by the way you are preferring others instead of yourself. People will see it. Their deeds will go before them. Because God is going to be praised. Those who practice the truth are most pleased, not when people are praising them, but when people are praising their God. They aren't any better than the one who acts wickedly. They acknowledge that it is God who is at work in them to will and to work according to their good pleasure, that their deeds have been wrought in God. 
Now, there are examples in Scripture of those who, who do testify of good deeds that they do. We have Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 7, talking about the way he restores the things. He, he tells Jesus how he's restored fourfold the things that he has taken wrongfully. But we also have many examples of self-justifying sinners, like those in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, that will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So are your deeds giving glory to God? Or are there things in your life that you are practicing in secret, hoping that they're not going to be exposed? If you are one of his children, God will expose your sin as a form of chastening because he loves you and wants to, to call you to repentance. You can't hide for very long. But this is also true of those who sin in darkness, but their deeds are not yet revealed. Because one day, everything is going to be revealed. On the day of judgment, our lives will be revealed. Those sins that you, that you thought you were doing in secret will be exposed. But now, as I explain that, ask yourself honestly, is my fear because other people are going to be aware of my sin? Or is my fear because I am going to have my sins exposed before a holy God? This will reveal a lot about your heart, about whether you really love God or whether you just think you do. Beloved, God is calling us to repentance. God is calling us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what John said to the Pharisees when they, when they came to him for baptism. Baptism doesn't wash you clean. Baptism can't change your heart. In the Old Testament, when, when the prophets would come to the kings with, with the pronouncement of judgment, they would put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. They would rip their clothes. But God is calling us not to have ripped clothes, but to, to have a rended heart that our hearts would be broken for our sin, that we would turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus with a heart of repentance. Beloved, we can't do that on our own. We're being commanded to do here that which we cannot do apart from a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So which side do you stand on? 
Are you standing on the gospel? Or are you standing condemned? Brothers and sisters, we have been given the light of Christ. Don't forget the zeal that you once had to proclaim the Messiah. Let his light shine through you. Let his light shine into this dark world. Ask him to shine his light in the dark places of your heart, to reveal areas of sin, so that the, the light of the gospel can cleanse you from these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. But unbeliever, this is an invitation not just to Nicodemus, but to you as well. Come to Jesus and be saved. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look to Christ and be saved. Let's pray.